0: This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. All right, well pick back up where we had been. Uh, in uh, Genesis 3.15, uh, God speaks of creating this enmity on the three different levels, between the woman and the serpent, the plural seed of the woman, the plural seed of the serpent, and then between the uh, the ultimate sing- singular seed of the woman and then the serpent. And we had said on the one hand... Um, that uh, points to this uh, enmity that always is between god 's people and the world, and then the uh, a further thing to note about this enmity and the the importance of uh, the enmity um, within covenant theology is that you when things are beginning here in genesis three fifteen you realize uh, from the very pronouncement of the covenant of grace as a covenant um, that that covenant, as a function of its grace, will create and exacerbate enmity between God's people and sin. That's part of what the covenant of grace does. It creates an enmity between God's people and sin. It always, in a sense, drives a wedge between the people of God and sin. And when it does that, when the covenant of grace creates this enmity and this hostility, it does that as a manifestation of grace. Uh, An increasing of hostility between God's people and the world uh, is not contrary to grace, but it's a manifestation of grace. Uh, That enmity between God's people and the world um, is an outflowing of God's grace in the covenant of grace. On the one hand, it seems to me important uh, to remember that as we, you know, several weeks' time get into the Mosaic Covenant and the law of that covenant. Uh, When God gives something that sharpens the enmity between His people and the serpent, uh, when God gives something uh, that brings greater clarity and greater definition to the enmity that is between His people and sin, that is not a divergence from the covenant of grace. It is part of the outworking of the covenant of grace. the creation and the exacerbation of enmity is a moving forward of what had always been part of the covenant of grace, uh, this enmity between God's people and sin. And that also has uh, implications uh, in the personal dimension as well. Uh, The enmity that God has given to his people as individual men and women, uh, the the enmity that they have against sin is one of the greatest gifts that they receive from the God of Grace. Uh, if you haven't um, found it already in your own life or in the life of others, uh, you certainly at some point will find that uh, those who seem, those Christians who seem to have the least trouble with sin, actually have the most trouble with sin. Uh, when a man seems, it seems as if his enmity against sin has diminished and his struggle has let up a little bit seems like everything's at peace, it's oftentimes then that there's the greatest need for concern. God gives His people enmity against sin. We know we're all sinners, we'll have sinful hearts until we're in glory. And so there ought always to be enmity against sin within God's people. And um, you know certainly within the pastorate or just as a Christian friend to other Christian friends, one of the greatest signs of alarm is when someone seems actually to have no trouble with any particular sin. Uh, there ought to be enmity uh, within God's people against sin. There ought to be that hostility. And when it's there, we ought to be grateful for it. And when it's gone, we ought to be concerned. Now that's um, a further a dimension to the enmity that God creates uh, within the covenant of grace. Um, There's this, uh, and and generally speaking, it helps us at the outset glimpse a little bit of the course that redemption is going to follow as God uh, brings it greater and greater clarity through the Scriptures. Uh, There will be enmity between a graciously chosen group on the one hand and then the sin that fills the world on the other hand. That's a general channel in which God's redemption is going to flow. There will be a group created Uh, who will have enmity with the world. But secondly, also in Genesis 3.15 there, you see uh, God promised that this enmity that is found in all of His people will reach its climax in the enmity between a specific personal seed, a singular seed of the woman, and the serpent himself. Now, as we all know, I imagine... God there is talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Messiah, uh, the one who would be wounded by Satan, as uh, the verse implies. Uh, he'll be wounded by Satan, bearing the curse for the sins of his people, and who, in that bruising, will ravage Satan. He'll crush his head. Uh, this is the, uh, the, the singular seed of whom God is speaking. Uh, God would send a new individual who would destroy the enemy of God's people? Now, clearly, there God is, in a sense, giving uh, the gospel promise—the uh, promise of a people who will stand in enmity with the world, and out of whom He'll bring a singular seed who will destroy the serpent. Now, God is, you know, in, in a very real sense, is preaching the gospel of salvation in Christ, and He also, there in three fifteen is declaring in somewhat dim outline the contents of the Council of Peace. We talked about the Council of Peace a number of weeks ago. Uh, And you can pick up the contours of that Council of Peace in Genesis 3.15. Uh, The Father has chosen a people. He's given them to the Son. Uh, The Son will redeem them, crushing the head of the serpent. And then the Spirit will apply that redemption to God's people, creating this enmity... Uh, between the people of God and the serpent uh, in the the words of genesis three fifteen you 're not only getting a, a kind of a forward glance into how redemption will play out in history but you 're also getting kind of a backward reflection on what has been done in the Council of peace. Um, you see in a pretty short scope uh, god 's redemption uh, described in in brief outline now the in the the fact that Genesis three fifteen has all this. The fact that it really does kind of lay out the course that redemption will follow uh, has uh, at least two. There at least two important things about that uh, for uh, the purposes of our course. You know, it's one thing to observe that uh, that the gospel is laid out in Genesis three fifteen, but there are two things in particular about that that'll have a bearing on what we talk about as we go through the course. Uh, first of all. Uh, it helps us again see the overall unity of the covenant of grace. Um, In Genesis 3.15, you have the promise of the woman's seed crushing the serpent. Uh, God says that's how redemption uh, will unfold. And then when you get into the New Testament, uh, in the very closing chapter of uh, the book of Romans, Paul makes an intriguing comment. Uh, he, he's wrapping up his epistle in Romans chapter 16. And he says in verse 20, in Romans 16 verse 20, he, Paul writes to the church and he says, The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Now there in Romans 16 you have the imagery of Genesis 3.15. You have the, the imagery of the crushing underfoot of the serpent. And Paul says that the crushing will be done by the church. Now, of course, there the church is being seen as the body of Christ. But what it does is it shows the continuity of what God is doing in the covenant of grace. What God had promised in Genesis 3.15, He then is doing in and through the church. Now, there's a movement from Genesis to Romans that, you know, for whatever progress and development occurs over the course of that process... It is a continuous development, a continuous movement from Genesis to Romans and then beyond as well. Uh, But there's this uh, continuity of God's purposes. Uh, Even in the post-Pentecost epoch of redemptive history, God still is doing, through His church, what He had promised that He would do in Eden uh, after the fall. Uh, There's this continuity to what God is doing. And you get the same... A point being made in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12 verses 1 through 6 again you have the imagery of enmity between the serpent. In uh, Revelation 12 it's a dragon specifically. But the the imagery of enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. And there in Revelation 12 it's used to describe the the more broad movement of God's redemption through the ages. Uh, but again, it, it serves the purpose of showing us uh, the continuity of God's redemptive purposes. And we see the, uh, the very organic relatedness of the various administrations of the covenant of grace. God is accomplishing this one purpose uh, throughout all of the covenant of grace. So the, um, the, the promise laid out in Genesis 3.15 helps us grasp uh, the overall unity of the covenant of grace. But also, secondly, and the last thing, uh, this early articulation of a gospel promise also uh, gets back to uh, the question from last hour as far as the, uh, the faith that God's people in the Old Testament had. What exactly was that faith? Um, when we realize the, really the, the clarity, in a sense, uh, with which God speaks in Genesis 3.15, it gives us confidence in saying that God's people in every age have been saved by faith in the Messiah. Like we said, God here doesn't name Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't give us the year that He'll be born or anything like that. But God does very clearly promise to send one who will destroy the serpent, one who will redeem His people. It's the promise, very clearly, of the Messiah. And everyone who has believed in it from Genesis 3.15 until today... Whatever clarity the promise had at their particular time that they lived, those who have believed in that promise have, had, uh, have found eternal life. Uh, there has been this promise of a Messiah from the very beginning. Uh, it's interesting to note, uh, refer to it last hour, or I mean, last hour that we were in here, that from, from the very start, you can see Eve showing evidence of faith in this promise that God had made. Uh, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, uh, we find the birth of Cain. Uh, Genesis 4, 1 says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now, you know, Cain goes on to uh, not a very illustrious career, but uh, when he's born, notice why it is that Eve names him Cain. Verse 1 there says, that she bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Very clear there, Eve is looking forward to this man who had been promised. God had promised her He would send a seed who would crush the head of the serpent. She has a son, and the name that she gives him reflects this joy that the Lord has given her a man. He's given her, she hopes, the seed that had been promised. Now, obviously, Cain doesn't end up to exactly be that seed, but then after he kills Abel and God gives uh, Eve a new son, she gives her Seth, it's interesting to note how she names Seth. In uh, Genesis 4 verse 25, after God has uh, dealt with Cain, it returns back to Adam and Eve in verse 25 and says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. Now again, you get this pretty clear sense there that Eve is looking forward with expectation to the coming of this seed. She obviously didn't have nearly the gospel clarity that we have in light of revelation that we have, but she knew God's promise that He would send a seed to destroy the serpent and with each child that was born, she was anticipating the fulfillment of that promise. And so you see from the very first, the very you know, first two people to whom this promise was spoken, there was a realization that it was a redemptive promise and there was the faithful expectation that it would be fulfilled. Uh, even back as far as Eve, you have uh, God's people looking to and believing in His promise. Uh, so that you, there's never a, a point in the Old Testament in which you can have any doubt about whether there was an understanding of the Messiah, whether there was really a gospel in which they could believe. Uh, from the very first man and woman, there's that promise that's eliciting the faith of God's people. Um, so that, uh, again, is uh, important as you move through covenant theology. Uh, and there, in, in Genesis 3.15, you have the essentially the whole course of redemption is laid out, and it serves as a, uh, a fixed point for the faith of God's people. Any questions about any of that? About Genesis three fifteen? Is it notable in any way that the promise was actually spoken to s Satan? Genesis three fifteen is actually in the speech to the serpent before he actually gets to you. Sort of odd. It's sort of a reversal but the grace for Satan's Yeah. It, it, it is interesting. I, I don't know of any um, particular significance to it. Um, I'm sure that you know somebody might uh, have uh, some opinion on why it does. But I, th- I think, if, if nothing else, um, by articulating their hope in that part of the curse, well, in a sense, it, by by putting it there. Each part of the curse that God announces is fully a curse on the one to whom he speaks it. Because like you say, it's kind of a reverse covenant of grace to the serpent because it brings about his destruction. And so it's being spoken in the context of covenant curse. It's spoken to him because it's the curse we brought down on him. And then when you get to verse 16 where God is speaking to the woman, um, it's all that's said to her pertains to curse rather than to blessing, uh, at least directly. And the same with Adam in the second half of 17 down through 19. Um, Basically, if nothing else, by being spoken to the serpent, everything that God says, even the blessing that will come to his people is spoken in the context of a curse for the breaking of the covenant. Would you keep... The, the, from the confusion of God speaking to Adam and telling him both blessing and curse at the same time, I don't know if that that there's that, at least that element to it. Anything else? All right. Well, that's uh, Genesis three fifteen, Like i say it's uh, the first temporal disclosure of the covenant of grace and it. Uh, shows us a lot about the covenant of grace and also lays out the sort of pattern in which the rest of it, uh, the rest of the, the unfolding of the covenant of grace will go. But we'll, we'll keep moving along and we'll go to what is uh, the next pivotal point in the progression of God's covenantal purposes uh, as they unfold in the Old Testament. Uh, what do you all think is the next major point in covenant theology after Genesis 3.15? Noah very good the the covenant with noah uh the Noahic covenant you can call it uh, and it we find it in really throughout Genesis chapter six through nine um, there was a, a question at the end of last hour about the Noahic covenant um, and as I said then that you in some ways the noahic covenant um, as you read through different Covenant theology texts, you really get the sense that nobody knows exactly what to do with the Noahic Covenant. Um, it kind of seems to be a little bit mystifying. Sometimes practically no time is spent on it. It's glossed over, you know, God made a covenant with Noah, gave him a rainbow, and then move on to Abraham. Uh, sometimes it's given a good bit of treatment, but it's treated in a fundamentally different way than the other parts of the covenant of grace. Um, But throughout all these different sorts of treatments of it, there's really um, one note of consensus that emerges, and that is that the Noahic covenant is a common grace covenant. That very often is referred to as. uh, It's seen as pertaining mainly, uh, or even in some cases, depending on who you're reading, pertaining entirely to common grace, uh, to things that, in a manner of speaking, things that impact the reprobate in the same way and to the same extent that they impact uh, the elect. Uh, The Noahic Covenant is seen as basically just pertaining to common grace elements within creation, uh, specifically the the preservation of time and of the created order. In other words, most often the Noahic Covenant is seen as having precious little to do with redemption. Uh, It's grouped under the covenant of grace but it's kind of put there because it comes after the fall, not because it necessarily has anything to do with redemption. That tends to be the the view that you find a lot uh, regarding the Noahic covenant. And it seems to me that's a, a horribly truncated view of the Noahic covenant, to say the least. Now, certainly the Noahic covenant does have a lot to do with common grace. You know, The preservation of the seasons and time and the keeping of the world from another flood is you know important for... Uh, All of humanity, there is a lot of common grace within the Noahic Covenant. But it also has extraordinarily more to it than just that. As we, we look at the Noahic Covenant, I want us to see specifically how it fits into God's redemptive purposes in the Scriptures. It's important to covenant theology, not just because the word covenant appears, but because God is moving forward His covenant of grace, His redemptive covenant. Um... So that's kind of what our main desire will be as, as we look at the Noahic covenant to see how it is a, a redemptive, truly and fully redemptive covenant. Now, uh, like I say, generally speaking, the Noahic covenant takes up uh, chapters 6 through 9 of Genesis, but the, the language and the terminology and the kind of the trappings of covenant uh, occur primarily in four different passages within those three chapters. Uh, in chapter 6, verses 17 through 22, uh, God speaks to Noah about establishing his covenant with him. Uh, then it comes back up in chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. Then again in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And then there's kind of a, a break in the narrative to where when you get into chapter 9, verse 8 through verse 17, it seems to be, a, a, you could look at it as being another place uh, where the specifics of covenant are addressed. And as Robertson points out in his book, if you've read him on the Noahic covenant yet, um, as he points out, one of those four places, chapter 6, occurs prior to the flood, and the other three occur after the flood. And the fact that God speaks of establishing a covenant with Noah in chapter 6 prior to the flood, and then again, institute or. Uh, establishes a covenant with Noah after the flood, leads some people to say that there are two covenants, uh, that God is basically has a, a pre-flood covenant with Noah and a post-flood covenant with Noah. Now, that's uh, not necessary to, to make that distinction. Uh, Robertson uh, says as much. He says, uh, Preliminary dealings precede formal inauguration procedures. Uh, basically, the, the preliminaries to a covenant oftentimes come before it's actually uh, formally instituted. Uh, that's kind of the way it is in biblical covenants. We'll find that as we go through pretty much all the covenants. That the covenant, you know, there might be a ceremony to which you can point as a sort of uh, formal uh, ratification or inauguration of the covenant, but the covenant itself has come before. There's, uh, there's no need to suggest that there are two different covenants. Essentially, um, in chapter 6, verses 17-22, through 22, uh, God announces His covenant to Noah. And then after the flood, there are some uh, ceremonies uh, in which that covenant receives further clarification and further ratification. Uh, so, in order to understand the Noahic covenant, you can't look at just one of those little passages. You have to take all of them into account. And really, even more than just those four, those four passages... You need to take all of Genesis six through nine into account. All of it uh, really is um, presenting us with the Noahic covenant. Um, You have to understand all of it uh, to get a grasp of what's going on in the Noahic covenant. Now, um, to do so, to do that, we'll we'll start pretty much at the start of chapter six, Genesis chapter six. Now we just were. Uh, discussing uh, last hour, Genesis 3.15, and how God had revealed His eternal covenant of grace there. Uh, God had essentially said He would redeem His people and He would judge His enemies. He would maintain the seed of the woman, He would bring about the ultimate seed of the woman, and He would crush Satan. So you know God has made this promise that He'll redeem His people and He'll destroy His enemies in judgment. And as you move forward from Genesis 3.15, as you get into Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 5, uh, that promise, that covenant promise, for the most part, seems pretty much intact. Uh, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain murders Abel, but then God gives Eve a new son, Seth. So the, the seed of the woman is still intact, so to speak. And we saw a minute ago how Eve is looking to Seth uh, for the fulfillment of God's promise. Then you get into chapter 5, uh, and you get the genealogical descent of, essentially, really, the seed of the woman. These generations of righteous men who God is maintaining. So, this, again, the promise of 315 seems intact. But then when you get into chapter 6 of Genesis, things get a little bit hairier than they had been. Uh, in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, uh, you get this somewhat mysterious account of the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. There's a a good bit of disagreement over exactly what that means. Who were the sons of God and who were the daughters of men? Uh, People uh, disagree about that. It seems to me, most likely, that the sons of God are the men of the line of Seth, essentially the, uh, the men of the seed of the woman, while the daughters of men are the daughters of Cain, or the daughters of the seed of the serpent. Now that seems, that probably is what is intended there, but you know, that's um, not a point that I would be willing to, to die for. But, uh, but it seems as if that probably is what going, is going on. What, what is clear and what's particularly important is what happens when the sons of God and the daughters of men intermarry. Essentially what occurs, as you, you see in chapter 6, is that the wickedness of man becomes all-pervasive. Uh, Prior to Genesis chapter 6, there seems to have been at least some degree of distinction, uh, fairly obvious distinction, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Uh, Even down to the fact that you can trace this lineage uh, of men that include, in chapter 5, that includes a number of notably righteous men. Uh, Enoch, for example, who uh, walked with God. There's a, a distinguishable group of the seed of the woman. But then when you get into chapter 6, in this intermarriage of the uh, sons of God and daughters of men, that obvious distinction seems to be lost. It seems as if now all men have become wicked, and therefore all men are essentially ripe for judgment. Uh, the, the universal pervasive wickedness that you find is probably put most clearly in verses 5 and 6 of Genesis chapter 6. Starting in verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. There in verse 5, it shows us that the wickedness of man has become exceedingly great, that every thought of his heart is only wicked all the time. Uh, uh, many of you have had Hebrew, uh, you know, you're familiar with the fact that uh, to the Hebrew mind and within the Hebrew language, uh, to speak of someone's heart is to speak of a sense of their comprehensive inner being. Uh, someone's heart uh, represented uh, the inner man, so to speak. So t- for the scriptures there in verse 5 to say that every thought of man's hearts were only wicked all the time, is essentially to say that all of man was rotten in the very seat of their being. Uh, The the, the core of who they were was rotten. In verse 6, the Scriptures say that this wickedness was so intense that, verse 6, the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. Now there, uh, the Scriptures are using what you what is known as anthropopathic expressions essentially right? yeah no, good Well, I think the the, the distinction would be uh, to I guess to to draw a, a, a parallel um, in a church or in, in a in a society with a a healthy church, so to speak. You know, all all men are sinners, but there if if the if there's a church where the where the gospel is being preached, there's sincere believers. Um, although all men are sinners, there's a noticeable distinction, one would hope, between the church and the world. And there's, you know, uh, there's a, um, a pretty clear distinction. You can tell who are believers and who aren't. That seems to have been the case that obtained, you know, in, for instance, in Genesis chapter 5. You know, all these men listed there um, were sinners. They had a sinful nature uh, through the fall. But they, they evidently lived lives of a degree of sufficient uprightness to where they were clearly God's people. I mean, even, like I mentioned, Enoch evidently was a man of such uh, profound uh, righteousness that in 524 it says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. He was a a man of piety. So there there seems to have been, although all men were sinners, a, a noticeable distinction between those who were the seed of the woman and those who were not yeah not the not the nature man yeah I hope I didn't give that impression where's yeah okay yeah yeah, it seems like what was going on is i mean it's essentially what what you can see in a lot of countries today <laughs> um if you want to look at it that way um we're in, in our own society that if you were to step back and critically and honestly look at it, there doesn't seem to be much difference between the church and the world, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Um, that, that seems to be kind of what um, is going on as you move from Genesis 5 into Genesis 6. Um, the, the, the wickedness has infiltrated uh, all of humanity. Obviously, it's always been there through sin, but uh, the the unbounded wickedness, I suppose. Um, and in verse 6, you see that it has, has reached such a depth uh, that God is said to be sorry and to be grieved in His heart because of the, the situation that pertains. And what I was saying was that those are what you call anthropopathic expressions, which is essentially uh, meaning that human emotions are being used to express God's attitudes. Obviously, it's not as if... Um, God was sorry in the sense of thinking he made a mistake. Um, rather, he, human emotions are being used to give us an understanding of, uh, of God's attitude. And essentially, it's communicating God's dissatisfaction that the humanity that he had created has now turned uh, to such wickedness. Uh, many of y'all probably read Dr. Courage's commentary on Genesis uh, and he, he puts it this way. He says that verse 6 shows that God is, quote, "...displeased and disquieted by the course of humanity's development." You know, Things have gone on such a path that, path that God is displeased and disquieted. Now, essentially, uh, the creation has gone into such rebellion that when you hold the creation as it was up against God's intention for it, it's unrecognizable. Uh, sin has become so pervasive... Uh, within the society. And because of that rebellion, God says that He's bringing judgment. Uh, verse 7 of Genesis 6, God announces His intention to destroy the creation, and not only man, but also the animal creation. Uh, God is going to essentially judge all of life. Uh, the, the abject uh, rebellion of man is bringing judgment upon all of creation. And that rebellion, again, is seen to apply across the board. Uh, The hearts of men are all, all the hearts of all men are wicked. But there is this one man who stands out from the rest. Uh, Back in chapter 5, verse 28, you had met a man named Lamech, and he has a son and names him Noah, in verse 29. Now, it seems, even from the, the fact that uh, Lamech gives Noah the name Noah, uh, as you see in 529, he names him Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Uh, there's, in, the, in the name that he gives to his son, there seems to be some indication that Lamech had uh, some sort of uh, pious hopes uh, but we know that certainly Noah uh, goes on uh, to be a, a notable, a notable man. He, he kind of he's mentioned there in the genealogy in 29, but then he come in 5:29. But then he comes back up in chapter six. Uh, you know, the start of chapter six, you have this spiraling wickedness of men and God's declaration that He's going to judge that wickedness. And then you get to verse eight, uh, chapter six, verse eight. And it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In a humanity of pervasive wickedness, Noah finds grace. Now, he stands out from the rest. Now the that simple fact is critical to understanding the Noahic covenant. Uh, creation is mired in this universal, unmitigated wickedness, and Noah finds grace. Now remember what we had Seen last hour back in Genesis 3.15. God had promised that He would sovereignly intervene and He would turn the enmity of the hearts of some men. Rather than being at enmity with God, some men would be made to be at enmity with the serpent. And God has done that with Noah. And God is fulfilling His promise with and in Noah. And after Noah has found this grace, after God has shown him grace and turned his heart so that his enmity is against Satan rather than against God, it's at that point in verse 9 that Noah is found to be a just man or a righteous man, depending on which translation you're using. And he's said to be one who walked with God. Now, I point that out simply because um, oftentimes it seems that people get verse 8 and 9 flipped around. Uh, They read Genesis chapter 6 as if verse 9 comes before verse 8. As if Noah was a righteous man and therefore God decided to spare him and judge everyone else. But, you know, simple fact, verse 8 comes before verse 9. Uh, Noah didn't find favor because of his righteousness. Noah found favor and then he was found to be righteous. Uh, Noah's righteousness is the result of God's favor and not the other way around. And that, uh, that chronological fact actually seems to be, uh, or, or Moses, as he's writing Genesis, seems to be drawing attention to that specific fact, uh, that Noah first found grace and favor in God, God's eyes, and then found, was found to be righteous. Um, Noah, uh, Moses, as he's writing Genesis, seems to be drawing attention to that fact. Because in a manner of speaking, the book of Genesis can be divided up into different books, uh, different kind of extended sections of the one book of Genesis. Um, and they're, they tend to be marked off by the, the Hebrew word toledot, uh, which is sometimes translated as history, sometimes as book, sometimes as genealogy. It can come across in different ways in translation. But uh, in the Hebrew, it's all the same word. And it's used to essentially break up Genesis into little chunks. Uh, The first one of those chunks, or the first use of Toledot in that way, is in Genesis 2, verse 4, where it says, This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Since you would had the one uh, overarching creation account, and then uh, Moses puts a clear kind of a break there, saying we're now looking at something different. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. He, there's a, a new chunk or new section beginning there. Then you find it again at Genesis five one, where it says this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And then the next occurrence of this kind of uh, organizational break in Genesis is there at chapter 6 verse 9 where it says this is the genealogy of Noah. And again it's the same Hebrew word underlying it. And then you get it again at Chapter 10, verse one, after the flood, after all of the uh, follow-up to the flood, uh, a new section begins. So this, this section of, essentially chapter six, verse nine, up to the end of chapter I'm sorry, chapter six, verse nine up to the end of chapter nine, is being set off as a section. And it's significant that the previous book ends in chapter six, verse eight, by pointing out that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And then there's this organizational break by Noah. It's as if Noah, not Noah, Moses, it's as if Moses is putting his chapter division there and starting into the next section and saying that uh, that Noah was found to be righteous. Uh, Moses seems to be taking care to point out that first grace was extended to Noah and then Noah was found to be righteous. Uh, God's favor led to Noah's righteousness and not the other way around. Uh, so from the, uh, from the very outset of the, the account of the Noahic covenant, we have this clear indication that God still is acting in accordance with His promise in Genesis 3.15. Uh, he still is turning the hearts of men by His grace and preserving the seed of the woman. Now, oh, it's something we're going to continue to notice as we go through the Noahic Covenant, um, that with the eyes of the world, so to speak, it would seem at the start of Genesis 6 that God's promises are not particularly holding up too well. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much distinction between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Um, it seems as if God's promises uh, are falling by the wayside. But what the, 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 uh, the account seems to be driving home is that obviously they're not. Uh, God is still acting in accordance with His promises. Uh, he's keeping the promise He had made in Genesis 3.15. He's turning Noah's heart. He's setting him apart as the seed of the woman. And it's through Him that this next uh, big uh, point in God's covenantal purposes will occur. Now, of course, it's also important to note Uh, exactly what verse 9 means when it says that Noah was a righteous man. he had this righteousness because of God's favor, but what exactly was that righteousness? Obviously, it's not a righteousness in the sense that Noah was sinless, uh, but rather that Noah was upright and sincere, that he was uh, single-hearted, you might say, Uh, that he he believed in the promises of God. uh, He uh, observed his responsibilities to God. Uh, he was a man who was seeking after the Lord. Uh, God had turned his heart and his enmity was against the serpent and not against God. And no sooner has the have the Scriptures told us this in chapter 6 verse 9, but we then, very quickly in verses 11 and 12, the scriptures remind us again, as if we had forgotten, that this makes Noah utterly unique among humanity. Uh, back in Genesis one twenty-eight, God had told had told mankind to fill the earth with his descendants. They were to, you know, to uh, to uh, recreate and fill all of the earth with people. But in six eleven, uh, Genesis six eleven. You see that Adam's descendants have actually only filled the earth with violence. Uh, Instead of filling it with men and women to worship and serve God, uh, humanity has filled the world with violence. Uh, There's this distinction again being driven home uh, that Noah stands in distinction from the rest of humanity. He uh, is a man of righteousness uh, and other men are men of violence. And uh, that again is, is... making clear to us the graciousness of God's choice of Noah. Uh, And the the graciousness of that choice is, again, uh, made clear in verse 18, chapter 6, verse 18, uh, which is one one of the key verses, perhaps the key verse uh, in the Noahic covenant. Uh, In chapter 6, verse 18, God says to Noah, But I will establish my covenant with you. Do y'all, do y'all remember us having mentioned that verse before, Genesis 6, 18? What, what Do y'all remember what we said about it? That's right. It's the first time that covenant, that the term covenant is used in the Scriptures. But uh, do you remember what we said um, was noteworthy about that first occurrence? That's right. That's right. Um, the the It's the first use of the terminology of covenant, but the the way that the terminology is used indicates that there was a pre-existing covenant. Uh, God is not um, creating a new, previously unknown covenant. He is confirming and perpetuating a pre-existing covenant. Um, obviously, that covenant doesn't refer to the covenant of works. God isn't perpetuating the covenant of works here. He's perpetuating the covenant of grace. Um, uh, The the fact that there's a pre-existing covenant shows us that there were covenants previously in Scripture that haven't been called covenants. Uh, But the specific covenant in in mind here is the covenant of grace. Uh, God had announced the covenant in Genesis 3.15 and He's confirming that promise Uh, the promise that He made to Adam and Eve, He's confirming that to Noah. He's confirming and perpetuating it. And on the one hand, uh, that keeps us mindful that Noah standing before God is entirely of grace. Uh, The covenant that's going to redeem him, the covenant whose perpetuation is going to bring him life in the midst of a a creation-wide judgment, that covenant predates him. Uh, it has nothing to do, uh, or Noah had nothing to do with the covenant. Um, the covenant was there before him, and he's being included in it by grace. Uh, that's one thing that that makes clear to us. It's not as if God was really super duper impressed with Noah and decided to create this covenant with him. Uh, Noah is being saved because of this covenant that God had made. In fact, there in verse uh, in, in Genesis six eighteen. You notice that God refers to it as my covenant. Now, the, God, the covenant that God is making is His covenant. Uh, Noah hasn't elicited God's covenant faithfulness. Uh, God is showing His covenant faithfulness in saving Noah and making a covenant with him. Um, which also you know, is again reminding us that uh, God's covenant promise in 3.15 is abiding powerful. It still is accomplishing what God had said it would. So as you, as you start into the Noahic covenant, there are essentially two things that are made, I think, very clear. First of all, it's clear that Noah is a man saved by the gracious covenantal initiative of God. He's not a man who stood, up, stood apart from the world because he was, had a really sound conscience or anything of that sort. He's a man who has been saved by the divine initiative of God. That's one thing. And secondly, it's made very clear that the Noahic covenant is forwarding the purpose of the covenant of grace through the means of the covenant of grace. The Scriptures seem to me to be somewhat at pains here to make clear that what is going on with Noah is going on in fulfillment of this covenant that God had pronounced uh, to Adam and Eve. Uh, this covenant's being uh, confirmed and perpetuated with Noah. Uh, we see the effects of that covenant in Noah's life. His heart has been turned. Uh, he uh, has enmity against the serpent, not against God. And it's made very clear that in Noah, and you know, whatever's going to come with Noah, it's coming through the covenant of grace, through the redemptive covenant that God had pronounced back in chapter 3. But just as it's... Um, seems like I'm always right at a point where I can't tell whether to keep going or not Um, well does anybody have any questions if you have a question I'd hate to bump up right against the hour and somebody have a question Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what you're asking. Yeah, the uh, it's, it's the first uh, occurrence of berit in in the scriptures. Um, but there, generally speaking, three main ways that berit is expressed uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, one is karat berit, to to cut a covenant, and that normally is used of instances where a covenant is being formally established. Um, for instance, one of the kind of the prototypical examples in Genesis 15, where uh, God's covenant with uh, specific the the specific manifestation of the covenant of grace with Abraham is being um, inaugurated there, and it's the covenant is being cut. Uh, also, at times, the terminology of covenant is used uh, in Hakim Barit, from a, a version of Kum, I mean. To stand or rise that the covenant is established, and it's used in instances in which a previously existing covenant is being confirmed. Um, I mean, like a, you know, it's already it's already there. It's been established, but it's just being confirmed and perpetuated. And in 6:18, uh, the the language used is hakim barit. So there's some covenant predating this that's being confirmed with God or by God with Noah. Um, and the way, the way that had come up before was when we were talking about the covenant of works, how uh, John Murray in particular says that you can't call God's relationship with Adam a covenant because the term covenant isn't found. Um, when, you, when you realize that the first time it is used, the language presupposes that it's been there before, even if the word hasn't been um, you would see, that's not an utterly convincing argument is how it had come up before when we were looking at the covenant of works. Um, but it, but it, it's, it's the language there. And uh, obviously, like I said a minute ago, it's not referring to the covenant of works here. He's, God is perpetuating the covenant of grace here, not the covenant of works. Um, but just the, the use of this language indicates that there are covenants behind 618 that just haven't been explicitly so termed. you have a question okay yeah, yeah, I, I don't know what um whether there's a translation an English translation that makes it any clearer than others. Yeah, it's it, it's um, it's very clear in the Hebrew, not clear in most English uh, translations. Because the, like I said, the Hakim Barit, without exception, is used of previously existing or uh, confirmation of previously existing covenants. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated, in part or in whole, for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.